It's not surprising to me that having gone through that DeFi summer chaotic, you know, growth hacking, yield farming period, that we've all come out of it. And, you know, not everyone survived, but, you know, the projects that did survive are now into the next phase. Days ago, somebody relatively prominent said, uh, Bitcoin is bigger than the internet, bigger than the industrial revolution. Was that Tim Draper? And it's exactly what's happening with Bitcoin. Bitcoin possesses all the attributes, not only of good money, but of supremely good money. But of course, it's not financial advice. Hey guys, welcome back on a new episode of the NFA podcast. We have been gone for a while, but we have a really amazing guest here today. Today we're here with Kane Warwick. He's the founder of Synthetics. He's a huge supporter of the Ethereum ecosystem and L2s and recently has been even called the head of decentralized finance by an outlet, which is now also his Twitter bio. So, uh, Kane, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, very well. Uh, very happy with my promotion as well. I've been, I've been waiting to be made the uh, dictator of all of DeFi for a while. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I find it pretty funny that they see you that way, but I can also kind of get it given your influence in DeFi. And... By the way, I'm also here with Kareem. He's the co-founder of Cryptnary and he will be assisting me during the pod. So how are you, Kareem? Yeah, I'm good. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on again, Kane. And excited for the Thanks. conversation. So uh, for the people that don't know, we have had uh, Kane on before. So if you want to know about Kane's background and more about the history of synthetics, make sure to check out the previous episode. Because in this episode, we'll be mainly talking about the future of synthetics and also obviously about the real yield narrative, which has really been uh, happening on L2s. So uh, to start, Kane, we have talked about with you before about synthetics, and we would like to know the developments that have happened since that podcast, because it was in Q1, and a lot has happened since then. Yeah, I think we spoke uh, earlier in the year, right? It was, it was like six months ago uh, or so. Um, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of stuff has definitely happened. Um, you know, I think we're convincingly in a bear market now as well, um, yeah. which, you know, uh, <laughs> which, you know, is, is good and bad, right? Um, you know, we're tr always trying to take the, the positives um, out of any situation. Um, I think a lot of projects are, are looking uh, now to, you know, work out what do they do um, in this environment, right? Um, you know, in, in a bull market, you can kind of, uh, chase, you know, whatever the next shiny object is. Um, I think in a bear market, you need to really look at, you know, kind of fundamentally, what are you doing? And, um, you know, what is the project that you're building trying to achieve? And so there's a lot of communities that are kind of grappling with that right now and, and trying to work out, um, you know, how do they kind of build through this, uh, this next phase in, in the crypto market? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing that a lot, but I also wonder uh, what has synthetics been up to? Because what I've been reading, you guys have a very clear vision and also haven't been, uh, you guys haven't stopped building in the bear market. That's pretty clear in my opinion. Yeah, I think uh, probably the biggest thing to emerge in, in the last like six months uh, is atomic swaps, uh, which has been interesting for me because, uh, you know, atomic swaps, um, which is basically allowing uh, synthetics to, to act or synthetic synths, um, so our synthetic assets 
to act as like bridges between uh, different AMMs, different AMM pools. Um, and this is an idea that uh, has actually been around for a, quite a long time. Um, it was originally, uh, I think Andre um, and Anton and, and a couple of people, um, you know, OG DeFi people um, who came up with this idea of using synths as bridges um, between different pools. Um, unfortunately, we tried to implement it a few different times and just were not able to like get it right. Um, not able to optimize it as well as we wanted. Um, so uh, we, we, I guess, you know, left it dormant for like maybe six months or something like that. And then one of the core contributors uh, had another idea about how to potentially do it better um, and went out and got it implemented. And then, you know, after that was implemented, all of a sudden it just started working. Then one inch integrated it um, and, you know, trans <clears throat> transaction volume, you know, really uh, grew, you know, over the course of like uh, a month or two um, by, you know, a factor of 10 or something like that. So, um, you know, it's been really successful, but it's actually something that's been around for a while. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, we also had, you also had futures launched um, between the previous podcast and this podcast. I can't remember the timeline exactly, but that's what I remember. And I saw like the the the, the volumes in general on synthetics grow tremendously. Even like me myself as a staker, I noticed a difference. Yeah, I, I think you know the, the fee yield from uh, from fees now is pretty meaningful. Um, you know, it's kind of depending on the price of SNX, obviously. Um, you know, because because uh, that's sort of how you're um, you know you're denominating in in USD, but um, you know uh, against uh, an SNX uh, kind of asset base, right? So um, you know the yield does fluctuate uh, kind of week to week. Uh, but we've been seeing you know high single digits all the way up into you know some weeks, uh, and this is just purely from fees, not not factoring in inflation at all. Um, you know, upwards of uh, you know twenty percent. Um, at times, depending on on the week and you know um, how volatile things were, how how many trades were happening, so you know it's definitely a, a good um, you know improvement from say last year where you know the the fee yield in, in SUSD was like low single digits, you know it might be one or two percent something like that. So yeah, it, it's a meaningful difference to a staker um, when you're getting you know twenty percent yield paid in US dollars for sure. Yeah, to give people an idea of how big that is, like I believe Synthetics is right now in the top five of the most, you know, like yielding protocols and even blockchains because Ethereum and Bitcoin are in there too. And I believe it's like at point at number five or four right now. So that's like a really big improvement. Yeah, precedes Bitcoin at times, but we have a special section dedicated to this um, for UK it's talking about the fees oh, and the nice. real yields. Yeah, nice. but before we get into that, just a bit more that we want to talk about when it comes to synthetics is synthetics is known as, especially for people who know like how, how, you know, not only how it's built, but how it works, it's become a backbone for DeFi, right? It's no longer sort of like the DeFi protocol, it's become a backbone for DeFi protocols. And now you're sort of building it into, you want people to, to, to some extent, build on top of it and solve the liquidity bootstrapping issues that new protocols deal with, right? So how, how's that been going, right? And the second question is, how does synthetics and SNX stakers benefit from that too, right? The, the linkage between the two. And if you can give us some examples of, of projects and protocols that are building or your favorite ones. 
Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting because Haven back in the day was supposed to be uh, kind of DeFi infrastructure, right? Like before DeFi even existed, you know, it was the stablecoin network. And we really went out and we were like, okay, we need to get the stablecoin integrated with you know, as many protocols as possible, different AMMs and, and you know, DEXs, uh, as they were called back then, before they became AMMs, um, you know, uh, things like either Delta, etc. Um, and, and so, you know, we really had this job where we kind of went out and tried to, to build this thing. Um, and then when we pivoted to synthetics, it became much more kind of inwardly focused, right? The idea was, well, we're building our own exchange. We want people to trade since, um, and we became less focused on stablecoin. I think over time, as since have, uh, you know, demonstrated their kind of Lindy and, and you know, um, managed to, to survive, you know, multiple cycles, um, people have started using them as infrastructure. So, you know, one of the ways that they do that is, you know, bridges between AMM pools. Uh, but I think another way as we've uh, kind of transitioned to optimism is like as the kind of de facto stablecoin or collateral in other protocols. So a great example of that is Lyra. Uh, so Lyra is an options protocol. It's an options protocol that can't exist on L1. Um, so the, the on-chain calculations uh, for, you know, the options uh, pricing are too complex to run on L1. So they run on optimism um, on a layer two. Um, and then on that layer two, uh, you need a form of collateral to kind of collateralize these positions. And so, uh, Larry uses SUSD because they can very easily use that SUSD to then go and automatically hedge, um, these options positions, uh, within the, their own contracts. Um, they can call the you know, synthetics exchange functions to, to move from, you know, SUSD to synthetic Bitcoin, synthetic Ether, et cetera. Um, and so what you're kind of seeing develop on optimism now is this, you know, pretty nascent but growing ecosystem of protocols that are leveraging SUSD as the collateral or as the stablecoin within their protocols um, and taking advantage of the this property of you know synth exchanges being um, you know made uh, directly on the contract with uh, with you know very deep liquidity so I think you know this is something that obviously uh, we were very excited about um, and you know in terms of the second part of your question you know what's the benefit to an SNX staker um, well if you're staking on optimism, um, all of those fees from the Lyra trades, you know, as they hedge these positions, uh, flow through to stakers. You know, stakers get the, the S, uh, get the SUSD fees paid to them on a weekly basis. So, um, you know, as these transactions and, and integrations grow, um, and as the, the, you know, volume grows and, and the, you know, revenue grows, uh, obviously stakers, you know, the yield just goes up. So, um, you know, it's, it's a very uh, powerful kind of, uh, upward cycle as, as, you know, people get more confidence in the ecosystem on optimism. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay. So now for the, probably I would say the most interesting part of the conversation, at least for me, because I've been an avid fan of this particular conversation. Um, so obviously we've been in a bear market, right? I mean, that's apparent. I don't think anyone like has doubts about this now, but for the past few weeks, I would say you've been echoing around this idea of intrinsic value derived from fees, right? Because back in the day, there was practically no link between project success and an investor making money. And as much as we try to, to beat around the bush in crypto about, you know, yeah, token price doesn't matter or whatnot. The, the reality is everyone buys these tokens because they want to make money on them, right? That's what an investor's job is. <clears throat> but 
like ICO era, nothing was there, right? Like, very honestly, XRP and like whether even if RippleNet were, were to function and, and like succeed, doesn't mean that XRP's price had to go up, right? It could stay at 20 cents and it would be fully functional. Um, yeah, I mean, you but know, now, in, in a way, like success is like utterly self-referential, right? Success was just price go up and price go up yeah. success, right? And like it was just yeah. definitionally the same thing. So, yeah, it was exactly it was really insane. It was, it was, there was never a link between the two, ever, right? Until like recently, people started talking about tokenomics, economic models, and how to, you know, whether that is burning mechanisms. And it's, it all boils down to like supply and demand in general, right? And you've been talking about this quite avidly recently, right? Um, especially with CryptoFees.info, the website that has all of the rankings of sort of the top revenue generating protocols, right? Another one that I find to be very um, useful is TokenTerminal.com. They've built an insane product. Honestly, kudos to the guys. Um, but you think this is what fuels the next bull market. So I want to talk about that. And why you think this in particular is what fuels the next bull market? And I'll tell you my 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 take on it afterwards. Sure. So you know, I think um, in startups, right? And, and crypto is weird um, in in a lot of ways um, because it's an entire ecosystem of independent startups, right? Independent protocols, independent projects uh, that all were really kind of started in, in, you know, in startup time, like in a very compressed period, right? Like even if you look, you know, you look back now and look at like a project that started in, like even, you know, Ethereum, right? Like it, it only started a few years before most of the DeFi projects, right? Like it's, you know, the, the timeline of, of when these things started was very compressed, yeah, that's true. right? Over the last decade. Um, and so when you look around, you see, it's weird, like all of your peers, um, you know, if you're a, a project founder or, you know, a contributor to a project or whatever, they're all kind of in the same position, right? Which is a bit unusual. If you look at like, you know, SaaS businesses or like traditional startup world or whatever, like, you know, there'll be like Intel, which was a startup, you know, 40 years ago, 50, like there's like mature businesses that like went through the startup cycle like decades ago, but are still like in your industry or, or whatever. Right. Um, you know, or there's Google, which has been around for, you know, 25 years now or whatever. And, and you might be an early stage startup that's two years in, in crypto, like there's like nothing, right? There was like Bitcoin and there's like, you know, kind of a five year gap and there's a few things that started some infrastructure things, whatever. And then like you have this like, Cambrian explosion of uh, of projects, right? And so everyone was kind of sitting in the same thing, um, the same period of, of the life cycle of a startup. And what that meant is that we we're all bootstrapping at the same time, which is why DeFi summer was so crazy, right? Because when you discover a trick to bootstrap something, everyone needs the same trick and everyone starts doing the same trick and like it just like spirals out of control, right? Um, and so, you know, it's it's not surprising to me that having gone through that DeFi summer chaotic, you know, growth hacking, yield farming period that we've all come out of it and, you know, not everyone survived, but, you know, the projects that did survive are now into the next phase. And they're all kind of in the next phase around about the same time, which is like, okay, we bootstrapped an initial group of users and, and you know, uh, product market fit. We've got to some level of success. We've survived. We're generating some revenue. Now the next thing is like, how do we get to sustainability? 
right? Um, you know, how do we make sure that this thing actually works? And all of the projects are kind of coming to this conclusion around the same time, which is not surprising because they're all about the same age, right? They're like all, you know, two, three, four, five years old, right? Um, and so, you know, I think uh, the fact that as a community, the the shift has gone from, you know, crazy growth hacking and, and yield farming to fundamentals and revenue generation is, is not surprising at all. Um, it feels a bit coincidental, but it, it makes sense because that's just where we are in the life cycle of startups. Yeah, would you argue it also has to do with the economy in general? Like, I feel like with even traditional startups in tech, they're also now caring more about revenue than say 2020, 2021. Feel like it's also a bit more uh, cynical, but you definitely have a great point there that all these startups or projects were all fighting for the same thing, and you could argue that that entire fight was not sustainable at all. Like you can't continue that fight over and over again. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely being funded by you know macro conditions. There's no question, but I think there's also a bit of survivorship bias in there as well. Like we look at the projects that are now kind of switching to fundamentals mode, right? They're the ones who had the capacity to do it. The ones that were just like, you know, a Ponzi uh, that had no fundamental value, those kind of disappear, right? And you forget about them. So, you know, there is a bit of a filter, right? Like when, when the money printer was switched off, the ones that could survive, survived and went, okay, well, we might, you know, we need to, you know, get some coffee and prepare for the morning, right? We've got to go to work. Um, you know, the party's over. Um, the ones that uh, didn't realize or, or were incapable of, of stopping just kind of kept going and, and, you know, went off a cliff, I guess. Yeah, I mean, bear markets in general, I've echoed this before, but bear markets in general, they just, they act as a filtration system for you. Right. And just makes things, makes life a lot easier. Like you can see who's still building and you can tell, okay, so these guys are going to still be around, right? Like Synthetics was building throughout the previous bear market. DYDX was around as well. And honestly, back then there were like a handful of DeFi projects, not much happening in 2018, 19, but well, 19 more so than 18. But you can tell, okay, so these guys are actually still building despite market conditions being bad. So they're still around. But there's another problem that's like, in general, investing is becoming more difficult because, and you talked about this in one of your blogs, um, the cycle is becoming shorter, right? The, especially as as far as like recovery or whatever, you know, it's, it's, it's becoming more compressed and it's happening on a quicker uh, time scale. So since that's happening, you don't have that. So usually, usually capitulation happens in like two ways. So you have the price-based one, right? Where price dumps so much that people leave, right? Then you have the second half is when it's just time-based one. Out of boredom and like nothingness, like the crab movement of the market, people are like, you know, screw this, I'm out, right? But the, the second part is, is, is the one that seems to not be happening. Well, maybe it does, right? It'd be great if it does, great if it doesn't, to be fair. I'm happy with mm. both. But uh, that that part is making it more difficult, to be fair, especially because what happens in a bull market is everyone comes in and it's not that you have scammers. It's just sometimes you have overly optimistic people that, I don't know, want to tokenize mm. the carbon footprint. I mean, great, but why do you want to tokenize the carbon footprint? Like, that just doesn't make sense, right? It's like they, they become like, I don't know, water bottles on the blockchain at some point because they're like, okay, why not? Because they think it's all money everywhere. But that's what makes the ecosystem like a bit more difficult if the, those cycles shorten. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I also, I think like the world is full of bad ideas, right? If you 
all, if all of a sudden there's like a geyser of money like pouring out of the ground, yes, some people will start coming up with bad ideas to chase off of that money. But the reality is a lot of those bad ideas pre-existed the geyser of money, right? Like they just were attracted to the geyser, right? Like they were already thinking about this dumb idea well before, uh, you know, crypto even showed up, right? They might try and like tweak it a little bit, but like I guarantee, you know, the same thing happened with like SaaS, right? Like when SaaS became a meme and everyone was like raising for SaaS businesses, people were trying to like work out, how do I turn my normal business into a SaaS business so I can like, you know, put my like bucket out and get some of this, you know, VC capital that's pouring into SaaS. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think um, that the cycle is becoming compressed. And I think that is a sign of maturity um, on some level, um, you know, and we are seeing some attrition. I think, you know, if you look at like crypto Twitter engagement, whatever, uh, you know, even on like top accounts, right? Like just the, the level of engagement is not as high as it was. It hasn't dropped obviously to like bear market levels from last cycle where literally there'll be like no likes on, on you know, <laughs> some tweets or whatever. But, um, you know, I think each time you like have a new plateau, but it does feel like we've kind of plateaued at this point. Yeah. Um, to, to come back, circle back to the conversation about revenue, because I had another question. So I was always in the camp up until probably two months ago that revenue sharing is incredibly important. Revenue generation solidifies its position, right? In the marketplace in general, mm -hmm. revenue generation. But then you have revenue sharing. And I was always in the camp that you should have revenue sharing and protocols should. Now, synthetics shares revenue with stakers, right? Ethereum will as well soon, like once it's, it becomes proof of stake. But Ethereum is slightly different. I have a question about base layers afterwards. But for instance, Uniswap doesn't. Uniswap shares them with like LPs, right? You have others that maybe take them towards this treasury or like SushiSwap, I think portion of it goes towards uh, the treasury and like 13% to stakers, right? Because which again is, is kind of smart if you want to bootstrap the treasury to have capital for further growth. Um, but my question is, what do you think of the non-revenue sharing model? Like the, the revenue sharing argument in general, where do you stand? Yeah, I, you know, the idea of not sharing revenue back in the day kind of came from this uh, meme of like not appearing to be a security, basically, right? There was this idea that like, oh, if you like have a revenue stream, it's obviously a security, right? Now, the reality is that like what happened subsequently is it didn't matter whether you had revenue or not, you know, some regulators decided that like everything's a security, right? If it's tokens security, okay, fine. Well, then you might as well do whatever you want at that point right like if you're not going to make any distinction between you know any system at all right if everything's just lumped into the same basket right that's that's kind of nonsensical um and you know synthetics just made the decision that like if you don't share revenue then it's it doesn't make sense um now i think the interesting thing you made the point about uniswap 100 of uniswap fees go to lps right now the interesting thing about synthetics is synthetics is like uniswap if you know you had to hold the SNX token to be an LP, right? So it's it's not too dissimilar, actually. Like a hundred percent of the fees go to SNX stakers, but SNX stakers are the primary collateral, right? Or, or like almost the only collateral. Um, and interestingly, no uh, fees go to like outside collateral at all right now, right? Um, so you know if you if you put uh, LUSD in or whatever or ETH uh, to generate SUSD, you don't get any fees from that. In synthetics v3, that's going to shift, 
So you will actually get fees from putting ETH and other collateral in. And then it's going to be a question of, okay, um, what percentage uh, of fees generated by external collateral, non-SNX collateral, should go to SNX stakers, right? So we actually have a fee switch debate that's going to emerge as part of V3, right? And the default may be uh, a Uniswap style, like no fees, right? So you'll get fees if you stake SNX, but an SNX staker will get no we'll get 0% of fees that an ETH staker generates. Now, we don't know where that line is going to be drawn, but like there's, it's definitely an open question. So I think synthetics is a bit idiosyncratic when it comes to like, you have to put the collateral in, you have to stake in order to even be an LP, and then LP's got everything. Um, and there's no other way to participate. So when that changes, we're going to have to debate uh, what the breakdown of fees and, and distribution looks like. Interesting. Interesting. I mentioned that I have a question about base layers, right? Because base layers in general, we look at Ethereum generates the most fees in crypto, right? Nothing generates as much fees in crypto, but you have the argument as well. The other side of the coin is uh, the, the reason it generates so much fees is because the fees are so high, right? And to this day, even like if I'm doing a swap and I'm paying $2, that's what's been happening to be fair for the past few weeks. It's been relatively low, right? Especially compared to like last year. But hmm. It's still perhaps like some people may not want to be paying a dollar or may not see it as optimum, right? And this is like a debate for, for like another day. But the question becomes, right? Ethereum post sharding is not supposed to be, it's not supposed to have that much uh, fees, especially in terms of like uh, singular fees, right? And so it's not going to accrue as much value, so to speak, right? Solana has, is like semi-functional, but also has like in terms of revenue generated, practically nothing. Arbitrum, Optimism, L2s in general. So the question is, how do you think, like, if fees are, if high fees mean poor user experience, how does one value a base layer? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting kind of, uh, I guess, like economic slash philosophical debate, right? For, for any base layer um, network with fees that are non-zero, Right, um, you're impacting demand for that that block space in the base layer. Right, if it's zero, then you'll have infinite demand. Right, so like you can, you know, obviously you'll hit some scaling. But if you assume that like you had infinite throughput um, within that base layer, right, that there were no constraints, right, it was unbounded, um, then you could absorb all of the computation in the world. Right, but even that, there is finite demand. Right. Like even, you know, at some point induced demand, you know, reaches diminishing returns. So like you have this like magical blockchain that can accommodate every single computation that the world needs to, to do. And it has zero cost. And so everyone just puts all their compute on there. Right. Um, now, ignoring like bandwidth and other you know, constraints, or whatever. Um, as soon as you make it non-zero, you lose like 99 percent of that. Right, because it goes to some other place because you know there's there's some lower cost uh, you know um, alternative, right? And so the question is, where in you know the the demand curve do you want to sit, right? And I think the reality is for Ethereum um, that you want to be as low as you possibly can on a per transaction basis, right? Because the induced demand from those low transaction fees, there's so much computation in the world that could happen on Ethereum that you're never going to have a net loss in revenue by having lower fees, right? Um, if, you know, it, there's just so much demand, right? And so if you believe that there is like so much demand for computation that like induced man will just keep 
piling more and more transactions onto this network, um, then there's almost no non-zero fee that you wouldn't be happy to, to charge, right? Like you just want fees to go as low as possible. And this is why 4844 is so important, right? Because on Optimism right now, we're seeing like, you know, 10 cent fees, 15 cent fees, like sometimes lower. Um, you know, I've, I've seen, uh, I've seen some, you know, ETH transfers on Optimism or whatever that are, that are even lower. If you bring that down by like two orders of magnitude and you have like sub cent fees, um, we get into a place where like we probably can accommodate demand for block space for the next like year or something, right? Um, before it becomes, you know, expensive again. Um, and so, you know, that buys us a lot of time through the bear market to continue to like optimize rollups and optimize the base layer to be able to accommodate even more. So I think in my view, like 4844 is so critical to the ecosystem because it just buys us time in, it puts us back to like, 2017 or something like that in terms of like the the you know demand for block space versus you know how much the cost of block space is um, and i think that that will give us runway from a, a kind of transaction fee perspective to accommodate like the next cycles worth of growth right in in DeFi and, and the overall ecosystem um and you know it, by the time we get back to ten dollar transactions or whatever on rollups you know we'll have had like three orders of magnitude more transactions than we ever had, you know, during DeFi summer or, uh, you know, the, the last pool market. So that to me is, is the critical thing. And, and I think if we can get there and we can get some of these things implemented in, during the bear market while the demand is low, we're just going to be in such a great position that next time, next cycle, this like Altel one narrative that emerged last time because Ethereum was too expensive will be dead dead in the water like it will just never it won't happen again um and i think that um it'll be really hard for uh an alter one to make a compelling case for why you should go and use that network when the you know roll-ups on ethereum are, are just going to be vastly cheaper yes um speaking on roll-ups uh last time we spoke the optimism token had not launched yet i think optimism had a very small tvl like it was basically just getting started. But right now, optimism has seen insane growth. I think incentives has played a quite big role there. And I wonder what you think about the growth of optimism, if you feel like it has been sustainable for now, given the incentives. And what you think about Arbitrum maybe catching up, if they would also release a token or not? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... Optimism's uh, like a clear number two now, right? Um, <clears throat> you know, like honestly, I, the growth in in TVL and Optimism, uh, even after incentives, it's been good, but like it's still probably not where I want it to be, right? I think right now we're sitting at like two point seven billion for Arbitrum and about one point five billion for um, for Optimism. Um, I think a lot of us, you know definitely myself included, were surprised having lived through DeFi summer and seen how easy it was to move, you know, uh, billions of dollars with the capital uh, between contracts. I think we just expected that it would be a much easier prospect, um, but it is much harder. Um, and, you know, even I remember when when Aave launched on, and had incentives on, uh, on um, uh I'm blanking. Uh, it's too early in the morning. Um, when they they did their launch on uh, Polygon, uh, on uh, and they got like ten billion dollars, 
I think, uh, or some, it was some crazy amount of TVL in the space of like I think that was like peak bull market though. Like I remember that it, was, it was so it was right. But so like, this is this is the interesting question, is, right? Like if a single project with only their own token incentives, which had already been running for a long time, uh, could migrate that much liquidity. Um, there's there's some interesting thing going on that is for whatever reason preventing uh, you know a, a mass migration of liquidity onto either Arbitrum or Optimism, right? Because like you know there are uh, there are token incentives going on on Arbitrum um, for native tokens for projects, right? Um, and native tokens for projects on Optimism, and yet we're not seeing uh, you know nearly that much uh, capital flow uh, to these networks. Um, so I'm not 100% sure what's going on there. Like it could just be bull market, bear market vibes, um, but I'm not completely convinced. I think that there there could be some skepticism around like bridges and, um, you know, maybe uh, like the withdrawal period. And, and so whales, for whatever reason, are not moving uh, in the same way that they did. But I think at some point the whales will wake up and they will start chasing uh, yield on, on these networks. And then at that point, you're going to have this like explosion of, uh, of liquidity and TVL. Um, but we're just not seeing it yet. And there's, there's something there that's preventing it. I'm just not sure what it is. Yeah, yeah, I can understand what you mean. I mean, there have been some bridge hacks here and there. There have been some uh, security concerns in DeFi in general, like not any projects you're involved in, but it has been a topic this year with some hacks going on. So maybe that's also preventing some people to migrate to new innovation, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, I'm looking at like the total value locked according to L2B on all L2s, right? And there's like 23 of them listed is $5 billion, right? Um, now, like $5 billion, uh, you know, compared to $10 billion for a single protocol on Afterload at the time, it, you know, it was just a side chain. Like it, it, you know, to me, that just doesn't feel like that's that's purely bull market versus bear market. Maybe I'm wrong, and and maybe it is that much easier in, in a bull market to move capital. But I do feel like there's something else going on um, in terms of you know large scale capital movement. Um, maybe you know that that situation with Ave. You know, remember Matic was like a you know finance launchpad project maybe there were you know some stuff going on with um you know whales in, in the binance community or whatever trying to support the network who knows um but yeah there's there's definitely something going on that i think overall where we're not seeing um why the incentives are not working the same way and, and why the tvl is, is still lagging um you know some of the stuff we saw last year it's an interesting point that i've not thought about to be fair about before um and could really be the the fact that when you have a long, a long withdrawal period, I know you can you can skip through all of that. Use uh, signups, for instance, right? Which have built like a great product and like withdraw immediately. You are paying a small fee, but when you're a whale, maybe that. I'm not sure if that's that's what the it does. Is or it, yeah, the slippage the slippage really gets painful, and there is a point where like you actually can't get out, right? And mm -hmm. you know, it, for each bridge, it's it's kind of dependent. But I think even if you like were to try and use all of the fast withdrawal bridges on. Optimism. We did this calculation a while ago. It might be out of date, but um, you know, if you tried to move like twenty million dollars or something like that, the slippage was you know like ten percent. So like you would exhaust oh, all oh, of the yeah, liquidity on all the bridges. You know, so twenty million dollars yeah. is not much into like 
ten no. billion dollars, right? Like we saw people moving of you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, to you know, Polygon during that period, right? So um, again, like it could be the withdrawal uh delays it could be something else I, i'm not 100 percent sure but there's definitely something going on that, that is slowing the migration um i know that you have limited time and uh you have another meeting so i'm respectful of that um although Thanks. i had a lot a, a lot of questions that i wanted to go through last question gonna uh, put you on the spot there you've okay. tweeted and i quote i wonder who the arthur chong and dejan spartan of this snx bull run will be so the real question is, because I know how low they've bought SNX at. I know like where it was, right? The real question is, how high do you really expect SNX to be going in this bull market, Kane? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, you know, I think it's a question that, uh, that we all kind of ask ourselves, right? Because back then, you know, we had the $6 meme um, that you know, came from uh, a weird bot that would like it go into a lot of the DeFi discords and, and you know, ask uh, when $6. Um, and, and so this meme kind of popped up when the price of SNX was like, you know, five cents or 10 cents or something like that. Um, and, you know, and it was kind of fanciful, the idea that uh, the price could get to $6. Um, so, you know, the reality is that I think when we switch to fundamentals, the the price of SNX and the price of the network uh, will be determined by the revenue that it can generate. And when we look at the revenue that we're generating now, I think we're probably, you know, 20 to 50x off what in optimal conditions we could generate. Um, so, you know, if you assume that the market is like even at all rational here, um, you know, there, there's definitely a view that, uh, you know, the, the revenue that we're generating could, could go up, you know, by like an order of magnitude or more. Um, now, whether that translates into, you know, price appreciation of the token, who knows? Um, because, you know, crypto markets are uh, historically pretty irrational. Um, I don't think we've yet quite got our heads around the idea of fundamental analysis in, in crypto. Um, but, you know, there's no question that if we can deliver on that promise of revenue growth, uh, that the market's going to respond. You know, I mean, if we could, if I, looking at uh, crypto fees, you know, 10x uh, revenue would put us at the top of crypto fees for today. Um, if, if that's what we're generating. So, you know, there's no question that if we're generating more revenue than Ethereum or, you know, Binance or even Uniswap or whatever, uh, that there would be an expectation that you know, people would notice that. Um, so I think that's the goal. Um, and, you know, what the impact on, on prices is, is, you know, kind of secondary to getting the fundamentals right and, and getting the fee yield up to where it can you know, fundamentally be. Well, I expected the previous bull market to be driven by fundamentals, right? And, <laughs> as well. so, and, and, and yeah, yeah, and we saw like a lot of shit coins pop up. So, I mean, let's see if this time is different. Uh, yeah, but at some point hope. it will be. At some point it will be. At some point. And, at some a, point. Yeah. As and markets this is why, you know, mature. Exactly. But, yeah, yeah. As markets mature, we just have to keep, uh, you know, you just have to keep building, right? And and you know, yeah. hope that eventually the market uh, the market responds. But you know, the market can stay uh, irrational longer than you can keep building. I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> problem. So. Yeah. All right. Awesome, Kane. Thank you for your time. Hope to Thanks, see you guys. soon. Appreciate it. Have it was fun. Have you again? Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. And make sure to go to Synthetics to uh, keep up with the V3 launch. I think it has been audited yesterday for us. So that's something really excited to keep your eyes on. 
Awesome. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Take care, Ken. Bye. Thank you. Bye, guys. And thanks for listening to the podcast. But of course, it's not financial advice.